Okay, another great episode of the Ortho Show podcast. We're bringing on one of my favorite orthopedic surgeons, one of my go-to guys. Uh, he is a brother of another mother, kindred spirit when it comes to innovation, professional education, uh, industry relationships as well. His name is Dr. Rob Meisler, and he's an orthopedic surgeon, sports medicine specialist at of NYU Langone in New York City. Uh, just so admire this, uh, this man as far as what he's done with his 30 years of experience. Uh, he got stuck in New York for a long time, then went to Arizona, has spent time in Israel, uh, which I truly admire. We got to talk about that. And then back in uh, clinical practice now, uh, the things that really stick out for me are his passion for mentorship, uh, his passion for understanding new operations early on, uh, Doesn't is not afraid to wait for a randomized controlled trial to make a decision. But really, if he sees something that's innovative and uh, he's willing to take on the risk and the curves to try something new and different, I really think you're going to appreciate this episode as much as I do. Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro. From Medical Media, this is The Ortho Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast, where everyone knows we bring you the best of the best in orthopedics. I am super excited for today's episode. We have Dr. Rob Meislin on, orthopedic surgeon who's a sports medicine specialist, clinical professor at the Langone Medical Center in New York City. He is literally one of my go-to favorite orthopedic surgeons for his innovation, his professional education, his mentorship. The dude's got a lot going on. Rob, what a pleasure it is to have you on, brother. You're just much too kind, Scott. I mean, <laughs> it's I'm just the truth, amazed. man. We speak the truth. I'm just, I'm just amazed that in terms of what you have, you personally have accomplished in terms of spreading this whole footprint of, of mentorship, yeah, no, teaching, professionalism. Um, no, I appreciate that very much, man. We, so we I, take great. I, I got to put my uh, my Narcan away. Your opioid sparing. I, I can put the Narcan back in the box. The genie in the box. <laughs> yeah. There's no need for any Narcan today. We're going to get through this podcast. No one's going to have any respiratory depression. It's all going to be good. All right, man. Let's. Uh, well, I appreciate that very much, Rob. You know, I, this has become a labor of love. It's such an amazing thing to be able to share the stories of someone like yourself who has 30 years experience, clinical experience in orthopedics. And, uh, you know, we always like to start from the beginning, right? So you're New York City, baby, born and bred, you know, you barely got out of there, but let us give us the story and tell us, you know, where you were born, were your parents doctors, when was thought for doctors and orthopedists and all that good stuff? Well, that's a uh, audacious uh, question. Well, let me let me start by saying that my father's a pediatrician, and he was a medical captain in Fort Detrick at the time. I was born in 1959, a, a baby boomer, a 50s baby, and uh, he was working on biological warfare. Big secret at the at the table when I got older was that biological warfare didn't necessarily work, but the Russians didn't know it at that time. So, so wait, a ped a, wait, so back up for a second. A pediatrician is studying biologic warfare? Well, he was, you know, early on in his career and he was in the in the army. I think it came more into into the into the story later on, I think in the 90s or 2000s when 
they kind of traced anthrax to uh, Fort Detrick to somebody wor working on it there. No kidding. So, so nonetheless, 1959, I'm actually born in Walter Reed Army Hospital as a result. So that's my my one connection to D.C. Um, and then they moved back to New York City in 1960. And then I grew up on the Upper West Side in Manhattan. And it's it's interesting. We're going to talk about this as we, as we get going. It's like, you know, you literally, you, you didn't leave Manhattan for, for a while there once you got there. But uh, so you you grew up in a Jewish community, community and you go to Ramaz Upper East Side for for uh, uh, for high school, which is a Jewish high school and still is at this time. And so, you know, what was that experience like for us? So actually, I, I went there from uh, kindergarten all the way through uh, 12th grade. Uh, real formative training. I think I got my uh, my dose of Zionism and my love for Israel. Uh, as a result, I was able to learn Hebrew, speak Hebrew, and uh, it was a, it was a great balance for me between secular education and religious education. I myself am more traditional, um, not necessarily orthodox, but you know, very very Zionistic. We'll we'll talk about that because you spent some time in Israel. But uh, so you literally were able to become fluent in Hebrew while in in your high school and, and middle school training. I wouldn't say fluent, but, you know, key words, I could read the prayer book. Uh, you know, I went to Israel a number of times, so it kind of got, got an additional dose of learning Hebrew. It wasn't until later on where we moved to Israel, my Hebrew improved. There, there's one sentence I can clearly remember from Hebrew school, and that was Sheket Pavakasha, which for our listeners means shut your mouth, which I guess apparently... I was doing a lot of talking in the back of the class rather than paying attention, but check up Vakasha still rings true for me to this day. That's too funny. Um, I was going to say it was, uh, it was, it was uh, channeling your, your, your future direction. Yeah, exactly. For sure. No, I love it. Uh, so, so you're, you're, you're stuck. You can't get out. You can't get off the Island. So, you know, there's a lot of great options to go to school in the world, but Columbia calls you for undergrad, which obviously was an amazing, you know, a, a, a school to go to, very difficult to get into, but, you know, just a train ride away from home, which is kind of cool. Um, and so from then Columbia, you still had the calling, but we still don't know. So dad's a pediatrician, you know, at what point are you thinking medicine, orthopedics? Was it, was it obvious or did it take some time? Actually, I hate to admit this, but I think it was a girlfriend at the time kind of said, oh, you're going to be a doctor, aren't you? And I guess I said yes. So, you know, between that and my father as being an excellent mentor uh, as a physician in terms of how much he enjoyed it, um, but, you know, medicine was my calling. I think it kind of gave me a direction to go into. Uh, again, this is in the in the late 70s where entrepreneurial endeavor was kind of, you know, low. I, I have so much admiration, you know, now, now for the people that, that do it. Um, but that, you know, back then, I guess it was, it was somewhat the way to go, whether you're going to be a lawyer or a doctor, uh, a professional. And, uh, I certainly had the role model with my father to follow in, in that foot, footstep. Yeah. I mean, a nice Jewish boy from the Upper West Side, you didn't have too many choices. You're going to be a doctor or a lawyer probably, but, <laughs> but, you know, having said that, but it's interesting you say that because in the seventies, right. It's Jimmy Carter's the president you know, interest rates are like 20%. Gas is kind of crazy. There wasn't really a lot of opportunity for, for business at the time. We were really struggling uh, in times of economic downturn. I think, you know, professional schools in particular typically do well. So then it's uh, all right. Well, you know, you had four, you clearly you weren't leaving Manhattan, but the good news is there's like four medical schools in Manhattan. So you apply to all four of them or whatever, and you get into NYU when you're going to medical school. Right. 
Right. Went to NYU. Just, just, just a quick story, Scott, was that um, I think my first medical school interview was at Buffalo at the Millard Fillmore School, from what I remember. And what, what sticks out is that when I landed that night, um, John Lennon was shot dead at the Dakota. Oh, wow. Uh, I think it was December 7th or December 8th of that 1980 um, when I when I was starting to interview. And it kind of channeled my my love for the Beatles. I'm a huge Beatles fan. So just a little medical school vignette. And we were all yeah, kind of and, to the And the Dakota, how far was the Dakota from where you grew up? I mean, that was... Uh, yeah, so just for people that aren't that familiar with New York City, uh, Columbia is about 116th Street and Broadway, and the Dakota is at 72nd Street and Central Park West. So you, you know, 20 blocks to the mile. It's an e easy, easy jog. It's within it's within shooting and running distance. I'm sure when you came back, did you go and, and lay down a wreath or put some flowers down or something and visit? Eventually went back a few days later and, and you know walked around there because I'm yeah. sort of a history buff in some in some sense. Yeah, no, that's it's interesting. I was in high school at the time, so uh, you know have have interesting memories for that as well. So you decide you're going to stay at NYU, all right? Dad's a pediatrician. You know when are when's this orthopedic thing coming into play? I was a high school student. I remember my my father was a pediatrician at uh, NYU. He got me in on. Um, I'm one of the one of the most uh, renowned uh, heart surgeons. So I remember watching this cardiac surgery as a young buck, and I, I was just like, I think I just fell in love with the whole concept of surgery, um, in, in terms of what it was going to entail and what was involved. Uh, certainly, my exposure to general surgery and cardiac surgery. I mean, I personally came away. I felt as though the general surgeons were a bunch of unhappy guys. And when I had a little exposure to orthopedics, I didn't really know. You know much about orthopedic surgery growing up other than the fact that i was a jock i played a year of college basketball at columbia um enjoyed sports had my own shoulder dislocation actually when i was 16 years i, I looked more into it and uh i thought that orthopedics would eventually be a great field to apply for i i, I didn't I, want to i didn't want to sit there and be on the receiving end of listening to patients complain about everything a to z and not being able to actually get that plus you know, we all have a thirst for some immediate gratification. So I think it all, it all worked out well. <laughs> I got to tell a funny story. My wife's probably going to kill me, but I, I was at a, I was at a, uh, a Shiva in, in, on the Upper East Side for my dear friend, Scott Kurzman. I went to, I went to college with him and uh, he still lives in New York and uh, I'm, I'm hanging out with my wife and we're in the midst of this, you know, Upper East Side, like, you know, Jewish huddle of things that are going on. And this woman comes over to my wife and says, you know, you're, you're engaged to, to Dr. Sigmund. And she says, yes. She's like, well, well, how did you get a Jewish orthopedic surgeon? My wife is, is an Italian Catholic girl. She's like, who are these people? I'm to get out of here. Oh, it's a classic story. We, we have, we've never forgotten it to that, uh, to that moment, but uh, yeah, a Jewish orthopedic surgeon in New York is a big deal. But um, all right, so you're so you're at NYU School of Medicine, and you get the bug, and you still can't get out of Manhattan. So you look at the four or five residencies that are there, and you get into joint diseases, which now it's not even called joint disease anymore. It's NYU Langone, which is where you are now. But you know, at the moment, it was at that time was still one of the greatest you know residencies to, to get into in orthopedics uh, at the time in the in the late '80s or so when you were there. So that was a tremendous accomplishment. Right. I mean, uh, I think I applied to maybe eight programs and uh, I got into Jefferson. I was very impressed with Jefferson. My wife is from Philadelphia. So there was a somewhat of a natural 
connection uh, there. Um, and then I found out from joint diseases about a, a few weeks, a few weeks later. So, uh, I mean, I just like, like you said, there was, it was six residents a year. They had a great reputation. I didn't want to leave the city at that point. And uh, I felt very happy with it, obviously. Yeah. I mean, it was a great program. And then you also were able to sneak a little bioengineering, biomedical engineering fellowship while you were in there too, which I think really probably helps when it comes to your seven or eight patents that you have and medical device design and some of the things that you have uh, a passion for now. I mean, I, I sort of am in the mindset that things work out for the best. You have to take a certain optimistic view. I mean, I actually was one of the residents who drew the short straw to end up in the bioengineering year. It wasn't a voluntary <laughs> you were through, there was, was It was like the penalty box. Huh? I didn't even know that such an exists. Well, yeah. So That's I awesome. mean, they tried to make, make the best of it. So we ended up doing a lot of research and published a lot. And in the end, it uh, it worked out It worked out quite well. Um, so I would encourage your listeners, just kind of shit happens, if I can say that on the on the podcast. Yeah, and just, sure uh, you can. just you go accept with it and make, make, make the best make the best out of it. Yeah, no, no, I love it. Uh, I love it. I love it. So, all right. So something strange happens. I don't know what you get through your, you know, you get through your residency. Obviously, you're, you know, you're doing really well and you decide that sports medicine is your gig and you're going to do a fellowship. But something, I don't know, you, something happened strangely and you end up in Salt Lake City. I mean, first time in your life outside of being bored, at, you know, uh, in Washington, D.C., you're getting on a plane and you're flying someplace outside of the city in Manhattan. So again, it's another it's another one of these um, sort of draw, drawing the the short straw stories. Um, I applied to what would it be like 10, 12 sports medicine fellowship programs. I remember being in awe of Curl and Job, which I, I believe you went to. I mean, this sure. was like, Curl and Job was like the cream of the the top. I mean, it was so sexy. All the doctors were taking care of the Lakers, the Rams. It just was like the place to be and. You know, joint, joint disease at that time had a pretty good track record of uh, having one of its residents showing up there. It just had a really good relationship. I thought I would be sort of the anointed person. I didn't get in. And I had interviewed earlier in the process at Salt Lake City with Lonnie Paulus and Tom Rosenberg. And, you know, they had, they had a very strong program. Um, and it turned out that I didn't initially match. And Salt Lake's, Salt Lake's uh, Lonnie's program, which was then called the Orthopedic Specialty Hospital, had a had a spot, and they had already interviewed me, and they they obviously uh, saw saw some strength in my resume, and they they took me, and that's where I went for the year. Yeah, and it ended and up being again a wonderful. It was a wonderful, a great, a great fellowship. Yeah, I mean those two were top of their game. I mean that was you know a great education. I got to tell my funny story then because you know Bill Levine and I are you know we're co residents at the Tufts program, and we're we're both thinking about sports medicine, but Bill really wanted to do shoulder. And uh, so, so we applied. He applied to both, and we both get an interview at Curl and Job, and they interview both of us. And then Bill does his, you know, the fellowship at, at Columbia, and you know, the rest is the story. But I said, Bill, I love you like a brother of another mother because there's no way they were taking both of us. And Bill was much better credentialed than I was to get the job, but he took the Columbia job. I took Curl and Job, and there you go. The rest is uh, the rest is the story. But. No, I mean those two guys were were wonderful, and I'm sure it must have been a really great hands-on experience for you, getting more reps, all that you do, and then somehow, some way, you know, you got lost. I mean, you you like, you, I would have thought you're coming back to New York in a heartbeat, but you got stuck in Arizona for a while. So you went into private practice in Scottsdale and Phoenix. Tell us about that. Yeah. So um, 
I just want to back back up a little bit. Just just give kudos to uh, Lonnie and yeah. Tom. Just in terms of you know they really developed the endoscopic was transtibular at that time uh, for ACL reconstruction. Tom developed the endo button, which is the suspensory button that we use for soft tissue hamstrings. And I mean, both of them were so incredibly innovative that I think I got my innovative ideas and bugs during that fellowship period. To answer your, your question about Arizona and Phoenix, um, I did I did interview initially to come back to New York, but there really wasn't any any spot or any place for me to say to come back to Manhattan. So the next best thing was I was looking for kind of a high profile type position. I thought as a young buck, I'm here I'm like 33, 34. Um, I thought getting kind of a high profile sports medicine, whether it was privademics or academic, would really serve me well. I'd be able to kind of get inv get involved and get that sports medicine practice going. So there was a there was an opportunity to come to Phoenix and become the associate team physician with the Arizona Cardinals uh, at that time. Um, we had some friends at that time living in Phoenix and we went down there visited. It was totally foreign uh, to me from being from New York City, urban, urban cowboy. Uh, certainly Salt Lake City was kind of a transitional year living in a house. I, I remember having to lock the doors because I felt so, uh, it was so, so strange. It was just almost too quiet. I mean, I'm used to sleeping with noise with sirens blaring and everything going on so it was a transition and i, I don't know we, we kind of fell in love a little bit with uh, arizona certainly the, the job ended up being being real well excellent just a quick story about salt lake the first night we get there again i don't know if you're familiar with this scott but in, in the uh 80s it was really big for people to break into your car and steal your your st audio stereo system Sure. It sure. Yeah. You got yeah. this thing called a Benzie box. Remember the Benzie box? I Benzie box was this cool thing you could kind of pull out and take with you to the restaurant. Yeah, you take so your you radio with you. That's right. That's take that's your right. radio with you. First time in Salt Lake City, I'm saying, man, I'm like totally free. This is like, I'm not going to get anything stolen. Have the windows down, parked in a, in a strip mall, come back from dinner, and the Benzie box is stolen. So, oh, um, man. I'll tell you. <laughs> Nowadays, they just throw you out of the car. And they take the car, but uh, no, that's that's awesome. Nowadays, always... everything, everything's on the everything's on the cloud. Nowadays, yeah, that's that's true, true, true. So you're you're definitely married at the time. I assume your wife went with you to Arizona. Yes. Yeah. And, and then so you're there for for a period of time, which I but I, so you get the calling though. I mean, we talked about this early on in the in the interview. You know, you you go to this uh, Jewish high school and. You know your 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 sort of passion for Israel. You go to Israel when you're younger, uh, and then you get the bug, and you you go to Israel and you work in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Medical Center for two years. I got to hear that story. That's really pretty fascinating. So uh, I was involved with taking care of the the, foot, the National Football League team. I got involved with the Major League Baseball, the San Francisco Giants, taking care of all their minor league system. I had the U.S. Olympics that I was getting involved with gymnastics. Everything was like a sports medicine. Yeah, you're kicking ass and taking numbers, man. So um, I don't know. I guess after eight years of being there, you know, I, like you said, I grew up in Manhattan. I guess I felt at some point, I don't know, maybe it was a little bit of a midlife crisis or maybe it was just my Zionism tapping tapping into me. At that point in 2000, there was real hope for peace between the Palestinians and the Israelis. I thought it would be a good time maybe to make a change. Um, you know, I thought there's always opportunity for newer, younger sports medicine orthopedists to come in, take my spot. And uh, I could kind of move on and kind of recreate myself and figure out what I wanted to do next. So it seemed like a really good opportunity. My, bro my brother 
lives in Tel Aviv. I got a lot of family in Israel. So it was, was a little bit of a natural or potentially natural transition. Especially in the Palestinian-Israeli peace, it's hard to sort of harken back 23 years now to sort of sort of have memory of that. But obviously you're drawn, you know, to the family and, and your and your history. And so was it difficult identifying a slot and getting an Israeli medical license or was there, you know, just tell us about that. Yeah. So it's, um, it was kind of my vision and, uh, I kind of dragged my wife and three daughters, you know, with me, uh, at a difficult age, mind you, my, my oldest daughter was 13 at the time. My twins were 10. And, uh, you know, eventually my wife's in the art, art world. She got a job at the Israel museum as a associate curator in photography. And my daughters, uh, who had gone to Jewish schools had some background and they, they had a little bit of a tougher time adjusting to school. I thought with my training and such, uh, it would be a great fit. So it was a good fit for two years. Did you get the calling to go back to NYU? Did a position open up? I mean, that's another major shift after moving the family halfway across the world. Sure. Yeah, so I got, actually got involved with taking care of a number of the Israeli Olympic teams um, through their Olympic Institute, got involved with taking care of a number of the professional basketball teams, a lot of former NBA, some college players. I mean, there's a whole world out there for excellent ball players playing in Europe, um, Russia, the Middle East, Asia. Uh, so I got involved with that. There was an opportunity for me to uh, join NYU. I certainly didn't want to go back to Arizona. I thought Manhattan made the most sense. So Joe Zuckerman, who's like an incredible, incredible leader in chief, uh, who actually just sort of started as a junior attending when I started my residency at Joint Diseases back in 86. Um, so I made the uh, reverse commute of going really from private practice to academics. Usually it's the academic private practice route. Yeah. So, and and, and Joe and Joe was very uh, forthcoming in getting me a position. And uh, so I came back here in 2002 and have been here ever since. Yeah, Joe is getting recognized at OSET this year, one of the one of the goats of uh, of orthopedics for sure. So oh. I saw on your CV you've got so many papers with him early on in your career. Well, part of that's from that research year. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Thanks to Joe. Uh, so so yeah, now it's twenty year. You're twenty years back at you know at, at NYU Langone, and you're a permanent fixture within the New York uh, orthopedic community, which is. You know, there's no good. There's no good competition in orthopedics in New York, right? There's just a few. <laughs> like, it's not that big a deal. No, it's it's uh, you know, not the, not the easiest place to uh, to practice medicine or or develop a new career in orthopedics. That's for sure. But look, there's a few things that I really want to focus on, which I admire greatly about you, um, and I want our listeners to know, you know, why you're passionate about those and and. Uh, one of those is really your, your, you know, being a mentor. If you take a look at your CV, it's a huge chunk of of the energy that you've put into your clinical practice. And so, tell us why that's so important for you. I mean, I think it's, uh, I think it's so important as an orthopedic surgeon to really provide some mentorship for younger medical students, uh, residents, fellows, so that they they can gain some of the skills that you have that we have. And kind of pass it on. I mean, this is, I, I feel very fortunate in terms of my whole medical history and my medical career. And I, I feel, you know, not to keep the line running would be a disservice. And I, I get, I get satisfaction out of getting a text from a, like a former fellow who's up in Quebec City, taking care of the hockey team down there saying, 
oh, check this out, Rob. I did an arthroscopic lavage in an hour and a half. I mean, that's like, that's like music, <laughs> music to my ears, you know? I just, I, I feel like, uh, you know, I've mentored him. He's confident. He's he's doing a great job. Yeah, I mean, you can only see so many pages. Yeah, I, have him, I have to give him a special shout out. His name is Bogdan Natash. He's, he's phenomenal. I think he's getting... No, the, we love the oh, shout outs. We love the shout outs on the Arthur Show. A 90-minute <laughs> arthroscopic lavage, that is dude sweet, man, all day long. Um, no, but I think that, you know, like, like we were just saying, you can only treat so many patients in a lifetime, you personally, right? So you've, you've been trained by some of the greats, you have tremendous experience, you're a master surgeon, and you, you feel obligated to pass it on, which so many of our ortho show alums do as well. So you bring up that one of the conversations, uh, points that I wanted to talk about was also the fact that you are not afraid to innovate and try new things relatively early on in the process of where they are, right? Many, so many orthopedic surgeons are really sort of old school thought process. I've learned this. I'm going to keep doing what I do. You know, I'm, I show me randomized controlled trials before I'm going to make any transition to something new or different. And arthroscopic letters, you were one of the earliest, you know, U.S. surgeons to consider arthroscopic letters and then take the journey of learning how to do what I think is one of the most difficult arthroscopic procedures we do in the shoulder. And so what was the draw? Why, Why? I mean, you had to be comfortable. You were doing open ladder J. Why, why did you have to go and learn this crazy new operation? Well, let me just back up a little bit again. Um, I remember on my last, like after I finished my fellowship with Lenny and Tom in Salt Lake City, my my good friend, Jeff Halbrecht, um, who's just retiring now, he was with San Francisco. He was in practice with Eugene Wolf. And Eugene, again, one of the great leaders in arthroscopy and shoulder surgery as well as well as knee surgery um he was coming out and doing arthroscopic bank card and i said jeff i got to come out for a day i got to see what eugene's doing you know because so much of the magic that's created is really portal placement when you get down to it and if you have some basic skills if you have the portals in the right area things should really fall into place for the most part assuming you have some you know basic hand-eye coordination so he was gracious enough to host me, spent a day, watched two or three cases. And I, I just like came back so enthused, so excited, man. I've been spending the year during my fellowship doing open bank heart. And I love arthroscopic uh, approaches. And I said, what, what Gene has going there with his arthroscopic bank heart is just phenomenal. So um, sort of the rest is history. He, in fact, at that time, he was fixing bank heart with the G2 MyTech anchor, the metal anchor. Yeah, he, he, and, he and J.R. Richmond, you know, who was my mentor. Right. Were and, the they were using number one, they were using, and they were using number one PDS suture. None of this uh, fancy number one PDS suture. because Mainly because you had your your uh, Limbatech or your Concept Spectrum suture passer, which again was very inventive, that could pass these small board sutures through, through the labrum. So I came back to Phoenix, fast forward, I get a defensive back who dislocates his shoulder, the Cardinals, and my former partner wasn't, well, put it this way. He was doing two incision ACLs, and he thought every bank heart, every instability should be treated open regardless, which is which is fine, right? And this is back in, in 92 when I went into practice. By 93, 94, I was doing arthroscopic bank hearts on collision athletes and, and had a pretty decent success with it. So I, I guess where, where I'm getting to, I'm fast forwarding now to um, LaFosse, who developed the arthroscopic ladder J technique for my tech, was that there was always a, a certain part of my heart that really got sucked into this excitement, seeing something new, brand new, that made sense. 
that technically could be, you know, copied and and maybe improvised a little bit, but there was the, the basic sensor that that all, all things are possible. And these surgeons made it possible. And I always felt like this is the great thing about arthroscopy is that there's room for innovation. I was one of the first people people to be flown out to Annecy, France to go spend some time with La Fosse. And uh, when I got to Annecy and got to the operating room, and again, a shout out to, to Laurent LaFosse. The guy is amazing, amazing, amazing. He's a hand surgeon also, but he was doing this stuff that was just like blowing my mind in terms of how he was approaching it, his mindset, his thought process, his humility. It just, everything about it, I just, I just loved. So, you know, came back in 2010, did my first, uh, did my first arthroscopic Labergé. And, you know, I have to say, Super you know, I do, I do, I do all sports medicine. So I'm not like a shoulder guy or knee, or knee guy. I kind of like everything about what we do arthroscopically. So I've never really been able to kind of expand my arthroscopic Labergé. I do maybe seven to nine cases a year. So yeah. for the listeners, for listeners, what, what Dr. Meislin is saying is that early on, the only way you treated a shoulder dislocation was to do an open incision. You cut the front of the shoulder, you sutured everything back together. And, you know, patients did pretty good. And then some innovative guys got together and decided that there's a way to do it arthroscopically, which means the smaller incisions. And they came up with these anchors, which had never been used before. Uh, and that's when you were on the cusp of that earliest innovation. You saw that. Uh, then you fly out to Annecy, France to work with the master, Lorraine Lafosse early, early on in the process. And, you know, I had that experience as well. And I can remember vividly being in the operating room with Dr. LaFosse and watching him do what he was doing. And I felt like I was watching like Van Gogh. Like at the end of the operation, I was like, man, that is freaking beautiful. But I'm like, I really don't know how to do that. <laughs> you know, and so, so fortunately, the MyTech crew and Tom Borg, uh, along with Sharif Bechet, uh, flew us around and we went to visit Matt Ravenscroft in, in Manchester, England. And Matt was a technician, you know, and he like, he's like, there are 34 steps in order how to do an arthroscopic letter J. And literally when you walked into his operating room, he had all 34 steps on the wall. And like, then I'm like watching this and I'm like, okay, now I see this. I think this is something I can do. And, you know, I've done, I, I did 25 in clinical practice. You know, I lost a day in my life every time I went to do one. Now I'm doing the Ivan Wong technique with the Halifax portal, the distal tibula, and I sleep every night before I go to bed. But, you know, I really admire that about you. And, and that's one of the things that I see kindred spirits with you, Rob, is that you've always been available, like, you know, hip arthroscopy. I was going to talk about that, but we're running out of time. But you identify a space, you identify an issue, and then you got you got the courage to go out and learn it. I think that experience-based medicine is just as important as evidence-based medicine uh, and learning from the greats and being willing to try something new and different is really fantastic. Look, Rob, it has just been a real pleasure, you know, having you on the show. You're one of my, you're my go-to guys. I just, every time I meet you, I don't know what happened. All of a sudden now you and I are like the old guys in the room, you know, it's kind of, it kind of bums me out. <laughs> we were at that, my, we were random the other day. I look around, I'm like, where's Alan Barber? I'm like, Oh shit. It's at least Rob's three years older than me. So it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh so listen, we we greatly admire your skills and innovation, your mentorship, uh, your 30 years of experience in orthopedics. I, I consider you to be a, a great friend and colleague, and I can't thank you enough for spending the time on the show with us today. Well, Scott, I can't thank you enough for inviting me and sharing a, a half hour of your precious time. You're, you're, you're making orthopedics and sports medicine 
you're, you're de de democratizing it. You're making it easier for people to, to, to do it. Yeah, approachable. That's really what we try to do here, right? My mother, Judy's always listening. We want to make sure that everybody that, li that listens, learns, is educated, has fun, and gets to meet uh, amazing people like yourself on the planet. You're a mensch. You're a mensch. Yes, so are you, my friend. So are you. <laughs> this is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.